you here again uh, this evening. And you'll notice I'm not behind a pulpit. Um, and in fact, what's in the center of the room? A, a whiteboard. That's because I plan on doodling <laughs> uh, while we're together here tonight. And what we're doing, as you've heard, as, is that we're talking about the covenantal architecture of Scripture. I want to back up before getting into that, though, just briefly and reiterate what we went over this morning. We looked at Romans 5, 12 to 21, which I said is a key passage in telling the biblical story of the covenants. Uh, in it, we saw that God has ordered the universe in such a way that human fellowship with him, we'll talk a little bit more about that, is covenantally determined uh, as humans, our status before God is determined by who represents us and, and, and who remembers. How many representatives do we have? Two. Two representatives. Adam, the first Adam. Now, we did talk about the third guy, right? We, we, we did talk about Moses, so that, that, that's true. But in terms of uh, covenantal representatives for the entirety of the human race, we would look at the first Adam and the last Adam. And our status depends on which of those two representatives we are in. Uh, we refer to these men using the term covenant heads. And regardless of whether you'll, you use that terminology or not, that basic idea is an idea that we find in Scripture. And, and one of the places where it's really clear is the passage we were in this morning in Romans 5. And the actions of these men determine and in particular, whether they obey or disobey the law of God, those actions determine how those whom they represent go. We used uh, the, the phrase this morning, kind of, as the king goes, so goes the kingdom. And depending on whether uh, your, the Adam that you're in is obedient or disobedient, uh, you will be a recipient either of the, the blessing of life or the curse of death. So we're now going to build on this foundation, and I'm just going to give you a brief roadmap of where we're going. Tonight, we're going to talk about the covenantal architecture of Scripture. Uh, and this, this talk addresses the, the underlying structure of Scripture. And, and your understanding of that underlying, underlying structure affects both how you read the Bible and how you apply it to your life. So that's what we're talking about tonight. Tomorrow we'll be walking through the covenantal story. Uh, so we're, we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, it's going to be a long night. But we're going to do the whole thing. Uh, and this is more of what we would refer to as a biblical theological approach, meaning that we're, we're walking through Scripture in the order uh, which biblical covenants are presented. And then finally, Tuesday night, we'll be considering two perspectives on the covenant of grace. And we haven't even really talked about the covenant of grace yet, but we will. We'll talk about the covenant of grace. And th there are two different articulations of the covenant of grace articulated in the Westminster Confession of Faith and in the Second London Baptist Confession. So if you're not already familiar with the differences between these two confessions when it comes to the covenant of grace, that's what we'll be talking about on Tuesday night. So with these preliminaries in view, let's now get into our material for tonight. And I, I'm just going to start with this. Um, my wife, her name is Shelley. 
she is interested, well, she's interested in a lot of things, but one of the things that she's interested in is forensic architecture. Does anyone know what forensic architecture is? No one? So forensic architecture, uh, it, it, it's this practice of uh, looking at a building and then trying to determine how it was originally built, how it was originally built, it, including what lies beneath uh, the surface, what's behind the walls, right? So you could have questions like, was, was there originally a stud here? You know, where, where are the supporting beams in this structure? And it's especially pertinent when uh, you're trying to do a, a restoration work on an older home. So you have an older home built in the uh, early 1900s. And what's happened over time to that home? People have done things to it, right? They have moved things around. And so if you're trying to restore it, you can't just begin, especially if you're living there while restoring it, which is the case with the home that we currently live in it. We live there, so we just can't tear the whole thing apart. But you have to try to assess, okay, um, what's behind these walls? And, and make decisions about uh, what, what you're doing based on, on that. So uh, as I was thinking about tonight, I thought that this, this attempt to, to, to see the skeleton of a home has some similarity to the Bible. Now, and I'm positing, I'm suggesting that there is, there is a skeleton. And what is a skeleton? It's a kind of architecture, right? It's the architecture that undergirds your, your flesh, right? Your muscles. Um, that there's a kind of architecture to the Bible. And we don't want to carry this metaphor too far with forensic architecture because what I'm not saying is that, you know, over time, uh, the, you know, the, the Bible has been monkeyed with a bunch, and we have to kind of figure out what, where that happened. But things have happened over time. It's not a matter of, of wear and tear or remodeling uh, that makes this kind of forensic architecture of the Bible difficult. But rather, I think it's just our assumptions, our assumptions about how the Bible is to be read that have added up over time. And, and depending on your context, your background, where, where, where you're from, you probably carry with you a number of assumptions about how to read the Bible. And that those assumptions about how to read the Bible are going to be based on your assumptions about the way in which the Bible is organized. Now, here's an extreme example. Uh, I'm not suggesting that any of you would hold to this idea, but you know, as an extreme example, uh, there are some people, when looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, who believe that the Old Testament has no relevance for us today, uh, or even that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. So, there's an assumption about the Bible that's going to impact the way that you read it. So, what I'd like to consider tonight is the bones of Scripture, how it's organized structurally. Now, before getting kind of into uh, positively how uh, the Bible is organized, I, I want to just talk briefly about another common way of thinking about Scripture's architecture that we find in North American evangelicalism. And here I'm, I'm comparing that way to the, the covenantal approach, and this is the dispensational approach. So we're going to talk just briefly about dispensationalism. What is dispensationalism? Well, it's, it's many things. What I'm suggesting tonight is, is that it involves a reading strategy when it comes to the Bible based on a perception regarding the bones of Scripture, the way that Scripture is organized. 
this is a movement developed by John Nelson Darby in the 19th century. It spread through England and Ireland in the 1830s due, his, due to his influence on the Plymouth Brethren movement. By the way, that's the movement that I grew up in. I grew up in a Plymouth Brethren church. Now, Darby himself was a Calvinist in terms of his soteriology, though as his ideas spread, they came to be embraced by many others as, as well. And, and then his, his ideas were popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible, first published in 1909. How many of you have ever looked through or maybe own a Schofield Reference Bible? Yeah, and, and what is uh, so, something about the Schofield Reference Bible? We, we had several of these in my home growing up. Uh, what's something about the Schofield Reference Bible that stands out to you? If you've looked through one. Lots of notes. Yeah, lots of notes. And charts, too. Charts. So oftentimes when we're thinking about uh, dispensationalism, many people just think of these charts. These charts kind kind of mapping out the Bible. Uh, And and so when many people think about dispensationalism, and it makes sense because of the name, dispensationalism, they they tend to think uh, maybe of these charts of just how the Bible was organized on those charts. And so they say, well, what dispensationalism is all about is dividing human history into dispensations. Now you see why that might be a reasonable conclusion. Dispensationalism... It's all about dispensations, right? That would seem reasonable, wouldn't it? I'm going to tell you that's not what dispensationalism is about. Uh, There's nothing unique to dispensationalism about dividing history into different eras and then noting the different ways in which God works with humans in those eras. Nothing unique about that. In fact, uh, the older Reformed theologians, and if, if, if you ever... Uh, get an itch for, for reading 17th century theology, and you start reading through older Reformed theologians, what you'll notice is that they're, they're talking about dispensations all over the place. They recognize that there are different eras in human history, and different things are happening in those different eras. So that's really not what dispensationalism is all about. By the way, this, this tonight is not a talk primarily about dispensationalism, so I'm going to say what I'm going to say and then move on. So what is unique about dispensational theology? What's unique if we're comparing a covenant approach and to dispensationalism? What's unique about dispensationalism? Anybody have an idea? If it's not the dispensations, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so you're on the right track. Um, I'm going to say this. The essence of dispensationalism is the idea that there are two peoples of God, Israel and the church, and God has a different program for each. Two peoples and two programs. And, and uh, briefly, down here, the way it works is this. Ethnic national Israel was God's original people. He promised to them an earthly kingdom. Uh, and, and so thus it can be said that God works through or works with Israel through an earthly kingdom program, what did Israel do? They disobeyed, right? They rejected God. And so what happened is that God's original plan was put on hold. There was a time out. And while that plan was put on hold, 
And, and by the way, this, this time period where Israel's plan is on hold is referred to as a parenthesis, a parenthesis. Uh, this time period was unforeseen in the Old Testament, and it came about because of Israel's sin. But is, the, the big idea is that Israel's plan has been put on hold. So what's happening? Well, Israel's plan is on hold. You have the church age. You have the church age. And the church is the second people of God. It's the people of God during the parenthesis. Uh, and, and while God works with Israel according to a kingdom program, he works with the church according to a heavenly program. Now, the idea is that God's promises to Israel will be brought to fulfillment at the time of the rapture, and at that time there will be an earthly reign of Christ for a, a thousand years. But basically when the rapture happens... Right? The, the second people of God, the, their program has, for the most part, been brought to a completion. We now hit the play button back on Israel's program, and God's promises to them start back up again. Now, this impacts the way in which you read Scripture, because, again, with dispensationalism, you are discerning two of, peoples of God, two programs, and what is the church in the storyline of God's dealings with human beings? It is an interruption. It's in an interruption, an interruption that was not foreseen. The covenantal approach, on the other hand, sees one people of God with one plan, and the church is not an interruption, but it's a continuation of God's purposes when it comes to human beings. Now, because of this, in dispensational theology, I mean, in, in covenant theology, rather, it is very, very, very important if we're saying the church is a continuation of what God began in national Israel to rightly discern the relationship between Israel and the church. Dispensationalism, it's easy, right? Different peoples of God, different programs. But if, if we are approaching Scripture from a, through a covenantal lens, this becomes a bit more complicated, doesn't it? Hence, on Tuesday night, we're going to talk about two different ways of, of thinking about this, this covenant of, of grace and these two different ways are going to have slightly different opinions about how to think about the, the relationship between Israel and the church. So again, I don't want this all to be tonight about dispensationalism, so I'm going to move on, move on. Um, and unless there are any burning questions right now that aren't going to take us too far off track. Okay, you can, yes. We are still in the middle of the interruption in, in a dispensational scheme. God's plans for Israel have been put on hold. And, and one of the things that we're hoping for in a dispensational approach is, is we're, we're actually really hoping and praying for that time when Israel's fortunes are going to be restored again because what does that mean for us? It, it, yeah, it, it means that we get to be the Lord, which is a wonderful thing. Good question. You didn't even take us off track. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we're going to have Q&A time at, at, at the end. So if you have any of those, like, that's really going to take us off track kind of questions, we'll, we'll do those at the end. Um, what I want to talk about now, coming back to a covenantal approach, is just this question of what is a covenant. Now, who remembers from this morning what a covenant is? A formal, solemn agreement. Good. 
Uh, and yeah, that's straight from Merriam-Webster's formal solemn binding agreement. And then I added a few things to that. I said, well, you know, this, this agreement has things like responsibilities, you know, obligations. You got to do that. You got to do that, right? Um, it has benefits and it has sanctions. These are threatened penalties for breaking the covenant. And what we find is uh, that this, this word covenant is all throughout Scripture. So we have terms translated covenant in the Old and the New. In the Old Testament, it's the word barit. That's the Old Testament word for covenant. And anyone want to guess how many times that's used in the Old Testament? One time? Okay, the new covenant is, is referred to there, but just in, in terms of just covenant in general. Yeah. You're, you're warmer. Yeah, it's 267 times. So a lot of times, right? This language is all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the basic sense of the word is, as you would think, it's an agreement, uh, contract, treaty, pact. And it's used to describe all kinds of agreements. You have marriage agreements, agreements between friends, between um, nations, and also between God and humans. And then in the New Testament, it's dia theke. We have that word in the New Testament, also translated covenant. And this term is used about 30 times in the New Testament. And the basic sense remains the same as the Old Testament uh, sense of the word. This is an agreement. It's applied to all kinds of agreements. And this term is the term in the Septuagint. Who knows what the Septuagint is? Yes? The Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the word used to translate berit. Um, Now, a brief note on these biblical usages, and the big idea here is that this covenant idea is all throughout the Bible. The very word is used throughout the Bible. Um, And and one Greek dictionary makes a comment that I think is, is worth reading because maybe, you know, I mentioned this morning that we enter into covenants all the time. If you go get a car loan, if you get a, a marriage certificate, I mean, these are covenants that you are entering into. But, but I still don't know that we really recognize just how significant uh, a covenant was during the times in which the Bible was written. So here's uh, one Greek dictionary. It says this, in many societies, and particularly in tribal ones, a covenant is a very significant bond between persons. It may, in fact, be the most important and lasting interpersonal relationship. The most important, the highest kind of relationship that you can have. It's, it's seldom entered into lightly because in many societies, a covenant binds a person for a lifetime and may even involve willingness to die for the sake of the covenantal relationship. So covenants are, are, are a big deal. We have this term federal. I think I mentioned that this morning. Um, federal, have you ever heard covenant theology be referred to as federal theology? And you say, what, where's, you know, what's the government's role here in, uh, in, in covenant theology? Well, it just comes from the Latin term foitus. Uh, and <clears throat> this is a term that was widely used in the 16th and the 17th centuries by Reformed theologians 
uh, along with the Latin term pactum. And these terms basically just mean those. Right? Just different terms to refer to the same thing. Just different terms to refer to a covenant. Uh, now, one thing I do want to point out before moving on from kind of what is a covenant is I, I want to point out that there is a difference between, and this is really significant, there is a difference between the covenants uh, that humans make with humans and the covenants that God makes with humans. Uh, here is one very influential 17th century Reformed theologian, Johannes Coxeus, and he writes, this, he says, the covenant God makes with man is different from those made by men among themselves, for, for men make covenants for mutual benefits. Okay, does that make sense? Men make covenants for mutual benefits. I'm going to get something out of this, and so are you, right? God, however, makes covenant for his people, period. Indeed, the covenant of God is nothing other than the divine declaration of the way of receiving the love of God as well as the union and communion of becoming a partaker in him. So the point is this, the covenants God makes with humans are unique in that God benefits in no way from them. God benefits in no way from the biblical covenants. You see, well, why not? That doesn't seem fair, right? That doesn't seem fair at all. Well, the reason why is that there's nothing that humans can do to add to God. There's nothing that God needs from us. God is perfectly, eternally, infinitely self-sufficient. So when God covenants with humans, it's an act of pure benevolence. It's pure generosity. He gets nothing from it. He gains nothing, you might say, and we gain everything. So this brings up the purpose of the covenants that God makes with humans. Is it okay if I erase this? Yes? Okay. So why does, if it's all, we've already said, it's for our benefit and our, for our benefit exclusively. Why does God make covenants with humans? Now, Coxeus has already said, this is the way of receiving the love of God and the union and communion of becoming a partaker in him. But I want to add to that and, and talk about just briefly Three related purposes for the covenants. Three related purposes. And the first of these is fellowship and fellowship with God, but furthermore, fellowship with other people. Fellowship with God and fellowship with other people. I think one of the the best passages to look to for this is 1 John 1, 1 through 7, uh, which talks about the fact that it is through our fellowship with God that we have fellowship with other people. Uh, we live in a very individualistic society, but that's not the way that God created the world to be. We are creatures as humans meant to live in community. And I think, you know, People do recognize that, and, and they're looking for, for ways of connecting with other people, uh, whether they're, they're doing it online, other ways that may not be so helpful, but people recognize the need for other people. 
that we're creatures built for fellowship with other humans. And what First John tells us that is that the only way that really comes about is through, first of all, our fellowship with God. And so covenant, this is a means of fellowship with God. The second thing um, that covenant is for is for the perfection of our nature. Okay, what in the world do you mean by that? Perfection of our nature. I look at myself in the mirror every morning, I seem pretty perfect. Like, what, how, be, how much better can it get? <laughs> I don't say that, but uh, maybe you do. <laughs> perfection of our nature. What, what, what do I mean by this? We're, we're going to talk about this more when we talk about God's covenant with Adam. Um, but let me just throw out a question. Uh, was Adam perfect? Was he perfect? Yes? What was that for, for a time? What do you all say? Was he perfect? Okay. I want to suggest that Adam was without sin until he did sin. But that he was not perfect. So what was not perfect? Is it that God screwed up when he made him? Right? <laughs> There's this little flaw that we've got to get worked out. No. Any ideas? And it, by the way, I'm not saying there was anything wrong with Adam. You looked at me like you might have an answer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. This comes down to the four states, and we don't have time to get into these in any detail here, the four states that Augustine talks about. And the state that Adam was in was in a state of passe non peccare, which simply means it was possible not to sin. And that's what he's getting at, is that that was a possibility. Adam could have not sinned. That was a possibility. Now, that's a good thing, right? He could have chosen not to sin. But... Passe non peccare does not guarantee that you will not sin. And what we see in Adam's story is that he was charged with obedience, and if, he, if he'd obeyed for a certain period of time, that his status actually would have been elevated, and he would have achieved a stage of being non passe peccare, not possible to sin. Now, would you agree that not possible to sin is better than passe non peccare. That's actually what we're all looking forward to in our glorified bodies. No longer able to sin. And so there was something for Adam on the horizon that he had not yet taken a hold of, even though he was sinless, right? Even though there was nothing wrong about him, there was something more that God wanted to bless him with should he obey for a period of time. And that's the thing that we're all looking forward to. And covenant was the means by which uh, God was offering Adam that reward. And we'll talk about that more tomorrow night. Now, let's take Adam off the table for just a second. For us, would you all acknowledge that there's something wrong? Our, our nature has been corrupted being born in Adam. 
And so covenant now, the new covenant in particular in Christ, is the means by which our nature is perfected. And the biblical language for this is sanctification. Sanctification. It, it, it is through what Christ has done in the new covenant that our nature begins to be restored. And then we look forward to that day, again, glorification, when our nature is fully restored. Now, there's another layer here. Um, it's not just perfection of our nature in the sense that everything that's wrong with us because of sin gets healed. That is true, but we were built by God, we were constructed by God as human beings to actually do things, right? And this morning, what did we talk about when it came to the, that positive charge that God gave to those first human beings? What were they supposed to do? Exercise dominion, which means kind of walk around with a haughty attitude telling other people what to do, right? I'm in charge here. Is that what it means? How would you define exercising dominion? Managing creation so that it flourishes. Good. Anyone else? Bringing order out of chaos, and that certainly is, I, I think, on the other side of the fall, something that we are, are charged with doing for sure. But even before there was any disorder at all in God's world, still there was this charge of exercising dominion, caring for, tending, stewarding the things that God had created. And what I want to suggest is that it's through covenant that our ability to do that thing, to, to care for God's creation, our ability to do that thing is restored, progressively restored in us. We become better and better at doing the thing we were made to do, exercising dominion unto the, the flourishing, the flourishing of God's creation. Okay, and the second thing I want to say is, or the third actually, is the glory of God. The glory of God. Now, Romans 3.23 is a very interesting verse. Anyone have that verse memorized? Or maybe they could look it up. Okay, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? In that verse. Kavod, yeah. So that's glory, Hebrew term for glory, kind of meaning uh, weight, heaviness. Yeah, good. And so, good, good. In that verse, how should we understand that? I mean, I... Oftentimes we just kind of gloss over it and focus on the, you know, all of sin kind of thing. We've all fallen short. The goal. Yeah, what does it say in, what is the goal for us as human beings in Romans 8.30? Okay, let, Romans 8.30? Anyone got Romans 8.30? Glorification is the goal. That's what we're aiming at, glorification. We see that in, in Romans 8.30. Uh, this is the goal of human existence, glorification. Now, what in the world do we mean by that? Interesting, the Westminster Shorter Catechism does not say that the chief end of God is to be glorified. 
Why not? He don't need it. He, he's as heavy as he can be, right? He's as weighty as he can be. And that's, again, the underlying concept of glory. Heaviness. He is heavier than heavy, right? We can't make him any heavier. So, so what does it mean for... So, so it's our goal to glorify him, which means what? Yeah, to ascribe his proper weight. And what's interesting is, is when we do that, when we do that, when we properly reflect who God is, and we do that through imaging Christ, as, as was mentioned, when we properly reflect who God is, when we properly recognize and give credit to God for who he is, that actually is us functioning the way that we're supposed to function. We operate correctly as human beings while doing that. So, I, so, so here are just three things that I, I would say covenant is for. That covenant is for. Okay. I'm going to move on. We got two more things to talk about, and then we're going to do some questions. What is the basic requirement when it comes to the covenants that God makes with human beings, the basic requirement on the part of human beings? Faith. Faith. Good. You've been paying attention in church. Right? Faith, yeah, faith. It's always faith, right? And, and we look at, uh, say, a passage like Romans 4, which talks about Abraham. On what basis was Abraham justified? The basis of faith, right? And, and we learn in Galatians, and I think you're going through Galatians, right? Um, we're told that the gospel was preached to Abraham. That's a really weird thing. You don't even have the incarnation yet. How in the world can he have the gospel? Right? Um, well, he has the good news of those covenant promises that God has given to him, which are going to culminate ultimately in the coming of Christ. And he believes what God has told him at that point. And he has to believe when he doesn't see, when it doesn't even seem plausible that what God has promised is going to come about. And that is counted to him as righteousness. So whether we're talking about Adam, whether we're talking about Abraham, when we're talking about Christ, Christ had faith. It's always by means of faith on the part of the human being when it comes to a divine human covenant. It's always on the basis of faith that those covenant promises are received. Okay, that was an easy one. Right? Let's move on here to covenantal categories. These I'm introducing right now, but we're going to talk about them more later. So I'm going to say there are three kinds of covenant. Three kinds of covenant. Three basic kinds of covenant. You have what's referred to as a covenant of works. You have what's referred to as a covenant of grace. And then we have this oddball called covenant of redemption. Which I'm going to say, you know, one thing is not like the others, right? Th th this one's different. There's something different about this. Covenant of redemption. And so let's focus on these. Wh a covenant of works is 
Here's what we mean by it. We mean it's a covenant in which both parties must uphold obligations. Both parties must uphold covenant obligations. Remember, a covenant, it's an agreement between two parties. And in a covenant of works, who has to uphold the terms of the covenant? Both parties. So what is a marriage? It's a covenant of works, right? A marriage is a covenant of works. Do both parties have to uphold obligations to one another? You'd say yes, hopefully, right? But both parties have to do this. So it's a covenant of works. What are the covenant of covenants of works that we find in Scripture? What, regardless of the terminologies, which covenants work that way in Scripture? Moses. Moses would be a good one. What, what's another one? We talked about it this morning. Adam. Yeah. Uh, Adam. Okay. Uh, did Adam have to uphold some obligations? Right. Um, and had God made commitments to him? I, w- I would say yes, they're implicit in the text, but we'll talk about those uh, tomorrow. So Adamic and Mosaic covenants, these are covenants that work on the works principle. The other kind of covenant is a covenant of grace, and this is a covenant in which only one party upholds the obligations. Only one party. What would be some examples of covenants of grace in Scripture? Ooh. Ooh, that's a tough one. Abrahamic. Now, this morning, what did I say? We had three covenantal eras, right? Three covenantal eras, what were they? Adam to Moses, and then Moses to Christ. I think you you can call the first, that's Genesis 1 through 11, this Adamic era, and and then we move forward to the the Mosaic era, which includes Abraham and David, and I'm actually, when we talk about this tomorrow, going to suggest that the Abrahamic covenant is included in this broader Mosaic category of covenant of works. More to come on that one. Okay. Any other thoughts? Genesis 3.15, okay. So you have the first gospel there. Uh, God is announced. Now, I would see this as an announcement of a covenant of grace, the, the coming covenant of grace, rather than that being the covenant of grace itself, but absolutely correct. We, we would look at the new covenant in Christ as a covenant of grace. I, I would say the Noahic covenant is a covenant of grace as well. The Noahic covenant, though, is for common grace, the new covenant is for special grace. What do, I, what do I mean by those? What's the difference between common and special grace? All people versus specific people. And the specific here we're talking about is saving grace. Yeah, common grace is given to everyone in that God doesn't look at the world and say, you know what? Here's a lightning bolt, you know, you're all gone kind of thing. Um, human history continues, on, even though humanity is wicked, on the other side of Noah. That's a common grace, right? The sunshine is given to all, the rain, people, you know, uh, the reprobate and the elect alike get to eat good food, right? So common grace, special grace is saving grace. Now, what about the covenant of redemption, Anybody know what we mean by this? 
Ooh, tell me about it then. Okay, a, a, that, that's a pretty good definition, agreement between father and son to save a people. Here's the problem with that language. I'm going to do something here um, that I think is a very... That when I start with freshman students in theology, this is the first thing we learn. It's item number one. Um, and I think it's paramount for understanding just about anything. And I do this. Theology, economy. This is an older way of basically just talking about the creator-creature distinction. Theology, economy. What is theology a reference to? It's a reference to God's life in himself. Economy we get that from that term oikonomia, which, which refers to household management. It's a way of talking about creation, but really through the lens of how God has ordered or manages creation. Theology and economy. And when you're looking through the Bible, you have to sometimes hit the pause button in your mind and say, what is this referring to? Theology or economy? Theology or economy? Theology or economy? And I would posit, you can't understand the incarnation at all without understanding these two categories. And this language, if you're looking at the 4th and 5th century, when we have those, those four church councils where they're hammering out uh, the, the, the Trinity and Christology, this is the kind of language they're using. But I think you can't really understand the covenant of redemption without theology and economy too. Okay. Where do covenants of grace and works fall on my little chart here? Theology or economy? Economy. Economy. Right? So I put covenant of grace, covenant of works, all over here. Why? Because they have to do with God's dealing with human creatures. It, right? Creatures. And creatures are where? We're in the economy. Right? Now what about covenant of redemption? It's over here in theology. Now, I'm going to draw a diagram. I don't want to get too far afield here, but I, I think it is important for thinking about the covenant of redemption. I'm going to draw a diagram, and maybe it's a diagram you've seen before, or maybe not. Have any of you seen this diagram before? It looks like some kind of scientific, I don't you know. <laughs> what was that? Okay. <laughs> Anyone know what that is? It's the shield of the Trinity. The shield of the Trinity. It's basically a way of just remembering the basic things that we want to confess are true about God's triunity. And what we find is that there are three persons, person one, person two, person three, that would be Father, Son, and Spirit. But there's only one nature, right? And, and when you look at older shields of the Trinity, they have these words, is not, is not, is not, because you don't want to say, you know, the Father just is the Son. You don't want to say, why don't you want to say that? Because then you're a modalist, and that's not a good thing, 
right? Uh, historically, Christians have said, yeah, that's not, that's not a good idea, right? So then you're a modalist. But you have the word is, or it's usually in Latin, s, in the middle, saying, the Father is not the Son, but the Father is God. And the Son is God. And the Spirit is God. Does that make sense? Now, here's an interesting question. Um, if I were to use the letter W to represent will, that faculty by which a decision or an agreement is made, we're talking about agreements here, where would we put it on that diagram? Hmm? Okay, we could put it here. Or you could, you, well, which is it? And this is the question that, and I'm just going to, because I'm, we're not doing Doctrine of Trinity today, but I think it is important nonetheless not to belabor it. That, that's a question the church had uh, and that didn't get settled until the 7th century. And, and Christians are debating this. And the question is, does will go with person or nature? Now, if it goes with person, how many wills are there in God? Two, 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 three, right? You got three persons, three wills. If it goes with nature, how many do you have? One. And what did the church ultimately, and I think rightly, uh, say was the right answer? This was at Third Council of Constantinople, 680, 681. What did they say? One will. One will. God has one will. One faculty for making an agreement. So let's come back to the covenant of redemption. What does the covenant of redemption say? It was, somebody said it earlier. The father and son agree together. This is how the plan of redemption is going to unfold, right? If that's true, how does that color understanding of what it means for the father and son to agree together? The father and son agreed because how could they not? <laughs> they have one perfect eternal will. Their will is always in sync. The father never wills something that the son doesn't. So I just wanted to take a bit of time to qualify what we mean when, when saying covenant of redemption. That one's not like the others because it's not like you have two parties who are coming into an agreement who could disagree. Father and son, no possibility of disagreeing. Okay, going to move on to one last thing. Um, and, you know, actually, I'm going to save it for tomorrow night. You're just going to have to come back. Um, it's really good, by the way. Uh, and, it, and I draw a lot of things up here on the board. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but because I want to allow time for Q&A, and we've, we've talked about a number of items, um, so let's take a break from me talking and have you ask some questions. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. So the question is, do I consider angels to be perfect? And I would say yes. They're perfect in, in the sense that what God made them to be, according to the kind of being they are, the kind of nature that they have, that has been fully actualized. It has been... Sure. 
So, but their nature is perfected in the, only in the sense that it's stabilized. It's stabilized. They are at a point where um, there's no possibility of them being any different than they are. So when you said angels, I was thinking angels, not demons. Right? And demons, of course, are fallen angels. But for those angels who chose to obey God, I would say, yes, they are perfected in their nature. There's not something on the horizon. They're not looking forward to glorification in the way that human beings are. What changed for angels would be the fact that they became fixed in their destiny once deciding to either follow God or to reject him. Their destiny became fixed. Until that decision was made, you could say they were perhaps something like Adam where there's a possibility, right, for, for them not to fall. But once that had, has taken place, and angels, you know, angels, that's very difficult. It's a bit difficult topic because we, we, we have uh, maybe not as much in Scripture as we would want to have in terms of information about angels. It, pre- it seems pretty clear that there's a fall in the angelic realm before the creation uh, of the humans, the first humans. Um, and we would say, well, th- well, that's when it happened. That's when it happened for angels. I don't, does that answer your question? Sanctification was typically referred to as a synergistic work of God, not a monergistic work of God. <clears throat> so I think that's important. First of all, my, my point is that it... Oh, sorry. Absolutely, through, through Jesus Christ. Absolutely, the, the, through the Holy, by means of the Holy Spirit... Ah, you're getting into a whole nother topic over here that has to do with this. Um, our glorification. Order of salvation. Yeah, we, we have it. We have an order of salvation there. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say this first. First of all, the first thing I want to say is that we would confess that not only. Is there one will, but there's one power by which God does anything. And so anything that happens over here in the economy is a unified work of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a unified work. So if you ask me, did the Father, you know, who created? Father, Son, or Spirit? I'd say yes. They they all did it. Yeah, but my Hebrews. Right. I used to. I used to. Uh, used. I used to be the Hebrew TA when I was in seminary for a couple of years. But oh. sure. Sure. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, if you take the numeric values of each of the Hebrew letters that make up Peladim, it comes 
Okay, so how, do, how does that... Okay. Okay, got it. Yeah. Then there's Sure. So what what we talk about here and I don't want to get too far down the road of trinitarian theology. My my reason for even bring opening this can of worms was to point out the fact that when we talk about the covenant of redemption, what we're talking about is, is not, you don't want to get this idea in your mind where the father says to the son, you know, hey, how about we do this thing? And the son says, you know, I don't know. How about this, this other plan? I got a different idea. And the father says, well, I really, you know, I really think you should listen to me. And the, and the son says, all right, I, I agree. The point here is to emphasize the unity of the, the will of God, just how complete in agreement father and son are. Yes, Well, again, there's never a time, if there is one will in God, where Father and Son are in agreement, but the Holy Spirit's kind of over here, not part of the conversation, right? So it's always an agreement of the triune God. Now, I, it's my fault for, for bringing up the Trinity here, <laughs> but I want to talk about another... Um, kind of fancy word that we use when talking about the Trinity, and it is, and I think it's relevant here because we use the word appropriations. And what the word appropriations means is this idea that even though God always acts in a way where Father, Son, and Spirit are in perfect unity in all that they do, and it's never that the Father's doing it, now the Son's doing it, now the Spirit's doing it. Nonetheless, as God comes to us in the economy there is a particular order or shape to that in which we are not always seeing Father, Son, and Spirit at the same time, right? We, we see the Father send the Son, and we see the Son's ministry on earth, and then we see at Pentecost the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And so the appropriations language is language for saying we can appropriate certain works in the economy to a particular person of the Trinity because that's how we experience God over here in the economy. But that is not to suggest that there's a time when the Father's working and then the Son's working and then the, the Spirit's working. So with covenant of redemption, really what we're trying to do is describe what we know is true because of God's plan that we've seen unfold in time because we know that it is the Son who took on human flesh and became a sacrifice for sin because we've seen those things. What we're saying is all that happened there, we know was agreed upon by God according to his one perfect will. And because it is the son that we're looking at as the one who again takes on human flesh and brings about redemption, there is uh, a reason for, I think, foregrounding what's taking place between father and son. But it would be an error to leave the spirit out of that. Yeah. 
Ooh, good question. Good, 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 good question. Um, I got to do one other thing on my diagram to explain that. Because now we're getting into not just Trinitarian theology, but Christology. And what we confess in Christology is that the person, and I'm going to take away some of these little extra words to not make this get too jumbled up over here. We confess that what takes place in the incarnation is that the eternal person of the Son assumes, I'll put a line here, a human nature. So I'll put an HN, human nature, divine nature. Remember that will goes with nature, so there's a will here and a will here. How many wills does the incarnate Christ have? Two. Human will and a divine will. And so when we look at a passage like that, I, th I think what we see is just a very reasonable expression of a human will. Does a human will desire to suffer? Does a human will desire to die? And is there anything sinful or wrong with saying, I don't want to feel pain, I don't want to die? Is there anything wrong with that? Is there anything sinful about that? Say no, because that is not what you were designed for. You were designed to enjoy God forever, right? Um, what I think you see there is an a natural expression of a human will facing pain and facing suffering. But because you have a unified person, this human will never is at odds with the divine will. They're united in the, in the person of the Son. So that, that's how I would explain a passage like that. Does that answer your question? Okay. Other questions? Yes, sir. Yes, I, I, I think that there are elements when we look at the Abrahamic covenant, which we'll talk about more tomorrow night, but there are elements when we look at the, the Abrahamic covenant where we would say, um, certainly God seems to be uh, the one taking on himself the responsibility for carrying out this thing that he said he will do. And, and what's the thing that he said he will do? Make a nation. We, usually three things, land, seed, and blessing. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you lots of kids. They're going to be as numerous as the stars. And then you're going to be a blessing unto, un, unto the whole earth. God carries forward his part of that. But I would say that baked into the Abrahamic covenant are commands. Are commands. Commands that can be violated. And that continues forward into the Mosaic era. So there are absolutely gracious, and this, you know, we have these kind of simplistic ways of categorizing covenants, and the, and the biblical narrative is certainly um, more sophisticated than those general categories that we use, though, though I think they're helpful, right? It's helpful to have some handles. Um, absolutely, there's a grace component within what's being done with Abraham. God is, is, is making some pretty big promises, but 
and he's doing more than one thing too is god just promising to abraham hey buddy you know if, if you'll go if you'll you'll leave the place that you're at if you'll trust me um it's going to be great you're, you're going to have this land flowing with milk and honey you're going to have lots of kids life is going to be great is, is that all that god is promising abraham a really blessed life on this earth. He forgot the land. He, well, his, his descendants did. Yeah, I, I would say that the, in, the, in the Abrahamic uh, covenant, yeah, yeah. In the Abrahamic covenant, God is looking forward to something bigger that he's going to be doing in Christ. So that Abrahamic covenant is working, and again, we'll talk about it more tomorrow night, it's, it's working on more than one level. There very much are temporal blessings that are being promised. There are eternal blessings that are being uh, at, at least prefigured in the Abrahamic covenant as well. Yes, sir. Yeah, the earth the earth ultimately is the Lord's. Yeah. Good. You have it in Ezekiel 36 as well, the, 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 new, the new covenant. Okay, yeah, the, the exact language may not be the same there, yeah. Other questions? I would say that what's happening with Israel, I mean, the short answer was, and it, is no, I don't spend a lot of time on that. Uh, at all. Yeah, my short answer w would be, just kind of reacting to that question, w would be that everything that's happening in national Israel is typologically looking forward to what God is going to be doing in the church. So that's um, when I said earlier that from a, from a covenantal framework, we are looking at the, the, what's happening in the New Covenant and in the church as a continuation of what God began in national Israel. Um, and so it would make perfect sense that you, you, would, ha you would have similar language talked about for uh, God's covenant people at that time as well as God's covenant people in the church. Sure. Okay, well, and the reading is? 
Oh, just read Leviticus. Okay. Sure. And the basic, the, the, basic, uh, the, the basic point here is that from a covenantal perspective, we are not looking at what God was doing with, with national Israel in, in, in such a way where there is absolute discontinuity between the two, but looking for elements of continuity. Well, with that, I think we're going to have to wrap. I've been told it's my time is up. My time is, is, I've actually gone over time. So thank you for bearing with me uh, past the hour. And I hope you all have a wonderful evening and look forward to seeing you tomorrow night. God bless. Thanks.